The May Wide World Magazine. The Wide World Magazine for May contains a wonderful number of interesting articles and stories. John Boys relates how he became king of the Kikuyu in British East Africa, raised an army, and acted like a modern warlord. Dr. Charles S. Braddock, medical advisor to the Siamese government, describes the islands of edible birds' nests. And there is an article of great interest to climbers descriptive of the mountains of the Island of Skye. The photographs accompanying this article are remarkable. Mrs. Marguerite Roby continues her narrative entitled A White Woman in the Congo, and William Hope Hodgson brings to a conclusion his startling account of The Prentice's Mutiny. There are many other items of interest, and the magazine, as usual, contains over a hundred illustrations, mostly from photographs. I believe there with the greatest of ease A daring young man on the dying top Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 14. One hundred years ago this week, the following obituary was published in the London Times. Second Lieutenant W. Hope Hodgson, RFA, killed in action on April 17th, was the second son of the late Reverend Samuel Hodgson and the author of The Boats of the Glen Carrig, The Nightland, Men of the Deep Waters, and other books. His early days were spent in the merchant service, where he gathered his material for many of his thrilling sea stories. He was a notable athlete, a fine boxer, a strong swimmer, and an all-round good sportsman. He was awarded the Royal Humane Society's Medal for Saving Life at Sea. At the outbreak of the war, Lieutenant Hodgson was living at Sannery, on the south coast of France. He returned to England, joined the University of London OTC, and got his commission in the RFA in 1915. As the result of a serious accident in camp, he was gazetted out of the army in 1916. But he never rested until he had passed the medical board as fit and obtained another commission in March 1917 in the RFA. He saw much active service around Ypres during last October. His CO writes, I cannot express my deep sympathy for you in your great bereavement. I feel it most terribly myself, and so do all the other officers and men of the battery. He was the life and soul of the mess, always so willing and cheery. Of his courage I can give no praise that is high enough. He was always volunteering for any dangerous duty, and it is owing to his entire lack of fear that he probably met his death on April 17th. He had performed wonders of gallantry only a few days before, and it is a miracle that he survived that day. I myself am deeply grieved, having lost a real, true friend and a splendid officer. Hodgson had died on April 19th, so the news from France took about two weeks to hit the London papers. One month after that, the following appeared in the London Sphere. A Literary Letter from the Editor London, 3rd June, 1918. Life is so full of tragedy just now, and for every home in which there is sorrow, there should be sympathy from the stranger. But to the readers of this page, a special measure of sympathy must always be given to the man of letters who dies on the field of war. I have long been acquainted with the work of Mr. Hope Hodgson. One or two of his novels had pleased me greatly, and a letter from him to me which I possess indicates that he had received encouragement from something I had written in these columns. 
Lieutenant Hope Hodgson was a son of the Reverend Samuel Hodgson, and he has quite recently met his death in France. His books include The Boats of Glen Carrig, The House on the Borderland, The Nightland, The Ghost Pirates, Carnacki the Ghost Finder, Men of the Deep Waters, The Luck of the Strong, Captain Galt. Many of his books were written in a chalet on the Côte d'Azur, but when the war broke out, he promptly joined the University of London OTC and got a commission in the RFA. He was gazetted out of the army once as the result of an accident, but made a point of rejoining as soon as possible. He was a popular officer, and his death was greatly lamented. He has performed wonders of gallantry, wrote his CO. Many knew him, writes a friend, as a highly strung, sensitive, rather dreamy idealist, but he threw himself heart and soul into the work that lay to his hand. One at least of his books, The Nightland, may eternally secure the interest of the public, which will not be ungrateful to its heroes who were also men of letters. One letter by Lieutenant Hodgson written home I have seen, from which I venture to make an extract. What a sense of desolation, the heaved-up mud rimming ten thousand shell craters as far as the sight could reach, north and south and east and west. My God, what a desolation! And here and there standing like mute, muddled rocks, somehow terrible in their significant, grim-bashed formlessness, an old concrete blockhouse with the earth torn up around them in monstrous craters and, in some cases, surged in great waves of earth against the sides of the blockhouses. The sun was pretty low as I came back, and far off across that desolation, here and there they showed, just formless, squarish, cornerless masses erected by man against the infernal storm that seeps forever, night and day, day and night, across that most atrocious plain of destruction. My God, talk about a lost world. Talk about the end of the world. Talk about the nightland. It is all here, not more than two hundred odd miles from where you sit infinitely remote. And the infinite, monstrous, dreadful pathos of the things one sees, the great shell hole with over thirty crosses sticking in it, some just up out of the water, and the dead below them, submerged. And, near the center, there was one cross inscribed to Adolphe de Hout, to November 26, 1917. And on the center of the cross, lashed with a piece of cross wire, was an empty bottle, upside down. Turn down an empty glass, I suppose. Who, I wonder, was Adolphe de Hout? If I live and come somehow out of this, and certainly, please God, I shall and hope to, what a book I shall write if my old ability with the pen has not forsaken me. Who, I wonder, was Adolphe de Hout? Some day, if it please God, I'll see that at least one French soldier's name is not lost in the dreadful oblivion that, like the mud of this hideous world, falls on the dead, and they pass out, wrapped in their blanket. By July, at least, the news had reached the States. Richmond Times-Dispatch, Richmond, Virginia, Wednesday, July 10th, 1918. Another to be added to the long list of authors who have fallen in the war is William Hope Hodgson, whose book of stories, Captain Galt, has recently appeared under the imprint of Robert M. McBride and Company. Hodgson, who was a lieutenant of artillery, had been eight years at sea as a sailor and three times around the world before he began to write. Shortly after the outbreak of the war, he entered the British service and saw two and a half years of fighting in France and Belgium. He was killed by a shell during the present battle while on duty as an observation officer. So Hodgson was killed by a shell, and if we want a visceral sense of that death, we need look no further than Hodgson's first-person account of a deadly exchange of explosive shells during his first tour of service. This is from the Gundagai Times of New South Wales, Australia, December 18, 1914. With the guns. How the French fight. A pen picture. 
William Hope Hodgson writes in the Pall Mall Gazette, A field gun rips out with a quick, intensely urgent crack in the sound. You slam your prismatics against your eyes and watch out at 3,100 meters, for it is a French gun with clever French gun layers. My word, and the drilling I've had. Mention no names, my friend. No names, mind you. Hey, but you wish to see war. You wish to give your countrymen a picture, a word picture, you name it, of how Frenchmen fight. Then come with me, mon ami. For the rest, you shall see us at our work, as we are truly, and you shall tell all the world that there are nowhere men who more love to fight than my beloved soldiers. Now watch. Abruptly, far away over the patch of thin pine wood, there flicks into sight a single little red star of fire, and then is gone. Instead, there hangs in the air where the little star of red fire had come and vanished a wool-white ball of smoke, intensely white, over the green of the trees. Then it expands, floating westward on the light breeze, thinning always into nothingness. Bop! comes the far, dull report of the burst shell, seeming to me to be so long after the explosion as to be entirely dissociated and apart from it. Too high, mes enfants, says the officer, and as he speaks, one of the men laughs and points. Very far and faint I hear it, a far-off whining, growing swiftly clearer and nearer and nearer. Meow, bat! Right over our heads it appears to my inexperience that the thing has burst, for that single dull butt of sound has seemed to me to hit me on the top of the head, imagination, largely, for the officer grins and raises his sight-finder. L'ombrelle not needed, sergeant, says the officer. It rains lead a hundred meters in our rear. The men laugh again. At three thousand meters he says in a business-like voice, and as he speaks, staring through my glasses, I see a red flash away back among the trees. See, I yell, he's there, in a line. But the officer has seen the flash, and springs at the gun himself. The men obey the side swing of his hand like magic, like one piece of machinery. Three thousand four hundred, says the officer, his voice strangely hoarse. Me begins that infernal whine of death again in the distance. There are no jokes now. Everyone is intent. We have located the gun in the opposite wood. The officer himself is sighting the gun. Meow! The whine rushes upon us in a changing crescendo of horrid sound. Smack! Jove, but that's a different sound, right on top of my head, it seems, sharp and clear and devilish in its vicious intent. But I'm all right. The officer is still aiming, for not two complete moments have passed into eternity yet. Abruptly, I am aware that all the men about the gun are suddenly different, grimmer, white-faced almost, it seems to me. And then I see the gunner in front of the officer, had leant sideways to give his superior clear sight, and the gunner has sagged right over onto his side and is still. Just like a sack, I keep saying absurdly to myself. Just like a sack. The officer moves suddenly, and kapach goes the field gun abruptly, with its queerly irritating snap-bang. Everyone is staring with a ferocious intensity at the spot from which the flash had come. Suddenly, a quick star of flame breaks out in among the trees. Then silence. Then a harsh, clear heard bong, the bursting of our shell, for that last one was melanite. Then once more silence. They lay the gun again, and three more shells are pumped into the wood opposite. Then half a dozen shrapnel, working to and fro over all the area round the gun. Comes a flick of a hello from the wood to the left. It is one of our scouts signaling. The officer grins happily as he reads the message. Come and see how true our fire has been, he says. 
Half an hour later, we surround the gun, or rather what has once been a gun. There is only silence and the dead. It lies on its side, and all one side of the muzzle of it is burred up roughly, like the wool of a scotch-knitted jacket. It is most extraordinary. La Mélénite, my friend, says the officer solemnly. It is terrible. The men go round and examine the gun. Where is the other wheel? I ask. You may ask, says the officer. La Mélénite is like that. It pulverizes things. He points to the hole in which the gun is lying. See how it digs, he exclaims, and see the trees. It is the most terrible of explosives. I stare round at the trees. Two have been almost uprooted, but have not fallen, for their heads appear interlocked. All around, the trees are clean of bark as any whistle. They are literally naked of their bark in great patches. It hangs on them in patches and slathers of bark and wood all shredded to fiber. Come and see, calls the officer a moment later. You ask where the other gun wheel is, he says, and I look up. There, hanging among smashed branches, is the lost gun wheel, forty feet above the earth. Mon Dieu, says the officer, like a man saying his one psalm. That is la Mélénite. Who shall say what it will not do? It is like a woman, and indeed it is feminine in la grammaire. And there you have him, as I have seen him, the Frenchman face to face with his enemy. For the officers are as the men, and the men as the officers, a strange people of soberness and laughter, trailing a bonbon cheerfully over the face of tragedy. So who was this guy, Hodgson, who was killed by a shell at Ypres? Well, to give us a window into Hodgson's eccentric personality, let's go back to an article from 1900. The Weekly Standard and Express, Blackburn, Saturday, November 24, 1900. The Claims of Physical Culture, Its Popularity in Blackburn, Standard and Express Special. Within the last few years, physical culture has become universal. The many objections and oppositions which had to be encountered at first are not now to be met with, but although, by reason of much talking and example, the general public have turned more or less to acquiesce in physical culture, we find that few people, outside the professional teachers, understand definitely what it is, and the various branches of exercise which compose it, hence with the object of gleaning some information for the readers of this journal on the subject, I, the other day, paid a visit to Mr. W. H. Hodgson at his School of Physical Culture, adjoining the Blackburn Theatre Royal. Mr. Hodgson, by way of introduction, is a native of Blackmorend, Essex, and his father was, until his death, a curate of All Saints Church of this town under the Reverend J. A. Rushton. The subject of my interview upon leaving school adopted a seafaring life, and during his term of service systematically exercised himself and acquired a sound knowledge of the culture of the body, until some eighteen months ago, having obtained a second mate's certificate, he settled in Blackburn with his mother and sisters to form eight months later, the class already mentioned. When did I commence my classes? replied Mr. Hodgson to my first query. February of this year, when the attendances upon the first three nights at the Court Street rooms were none, one, and three, respectively. In the course of three weeks, it increased to thirty. Now it has reached one hundred forty of a membership. That is why I have removed to these premises." Then the young men of Blackburn take an interest in the subject and are becoming attached to it? I asked. Yes, I think they are beginning to see the value of physical culture. While I might tell you there seems a growing desire on the part of ladies to take up physical culture, I hope to have a good class next season. The borough police, do you not train them? I have about twenty under my care, though I am not officially engaged by the corporation. Many others, I understand, propose taking a course also. Systematic exercise, Mr. Hodgson, you would, I presume, hold to be decidedly superior to recreative? 
Yes, I think so, because you see, recreative exercise in most cases, if it develops at all, only develops a certain part of the body. For instance, running will develop the legs and lower extremities, but it is often dangerous to the heart. Swimming, however, is a grand all-round exercise, developing the limbs, trunk, heart, and lungs. But would not swimming in the winter months be dangerous? There might be some risk of a chill, but if people remained in a certain time only and dressed promptly, there should be no fear of ill effects. Then recreative exercise is first and foremost unconscious exercise and therefore of little value? Yes, and might be included under the general heading of sport. Football, cricket, walking, rowing, gymnastics. It is unscientific. It is utterly impossible to gauge it, to calculate its effects, or to prescribe it. It is, or ought to be, the natural exuberance of body and mind, a healthy overflow of animal spirits. At the same time, recreative exercise does not develop the body, and, as its effects cannot be calculated, it too often results in overstrain. The great feature about it is that it is unconscious, for, as systematic exercise is conscious, it is usually done only with the expenditure of willpower. That is a point I am very strong on, for this reason, that although I recognize with others outdoor sport has made the British nation what it is, yet I cannot prescribe it. To recommend a man to play football or indulge in gymnastics is to ask him to do something, the results of which you cannot possibly calculate. Then you would not advise anyone to take up gymnastics unless they are thoroughly strong or have practiced some systematic course of exercise beforehand? Certainly not, because often when a young man goes to a gymnasium, he will attempt lifting weights as heavy almost as his own body. This is a great strain. Then others seize hold of dumbbells altogether too heavy for them in reality, and instead of raising the bells, use their bodies as dumbbells. May I take it you consider gymnastics an excellent thing if under proper supervision and preceded and accompanied by physical culture? Oh yes, because there is no doubt they train both the hand and eye and give one confidence. That is, if the man is strong enough. Systematic exercise of all parts of the body, however small, places one in a position for gymnastics which require no little strength. It removes the danger attending violent action on the heart. Systematic exercise, however extensive, is less of a strain than perhaps a single violent effort. The question of physical culture should surely be taken up more extensively by the government? Most decidedly. In fact, Sandow, who is the greatest authority on physical culture, has instituted a great movement in this direction, in the same way that people have mental culture. We send our children to school and expect them to learn in rooms close and hot enough for hothouse plants, their bodies being left to grow up as they may chance to. And what do you think of the system of drill in many of our elementary schools? Well, I am opposed to drill being accompanied by music. Music induces swing, and swing never yet developed muscle and never would. Again, when the children are drilling, they are often unaware what effect any particular exercise will have on the various parts of the body, while in many instances they are kept on far too long without any account of one child being stronger than another being taken into consideration. May I ask what you consider to be the proper conception of physical culture, not that it is simply to develop big muscles? The ideal of such culture is a perfectly balanced body in which health, both bodily and mentally, is the principal object. And these two are obtained by a system of scientific exercise. A strong and healthy body thus attained creates a clear mind and removes from it encumbrances which must otherwise always drag upon the brain workers. Do you not think each school ought to engage a qualified instructor or instructress for drill work? Most certainly I do. Why, you would never think of putting an ignorant man or woman to watch over and nourish the mental capacities of the children of the nation. It is absolutely essential qualified teachers should be engaged. Then why should those who know little or nothing of physical culture or the science of drill be called upon to teach such subjects? Teachers who neither know, and for the matter of that do not profess to know, 
Anything about the development of the body ought not to be expected to undertake these duties. They might be clever mentally, and very often were, but where they had never made no special study of the subject, it was unfair to even ask them to fulfill the teaching of it. Besides, it was not honest to the children themselves. Briefly, Mr. Hodgson, the main distinction between recreative and systematic exercise is that systematic exercise employs the use of willpower and is both stimulating and refreshing, whereas in the case of recreative exercise, fatigue ensues and incapacitates one from work. The two things are not on the same plane in any way. They both come under the head of physical culture, but their effects on the body are quite different. A man exercising his legs systematically for five minutes every morning can more than keep pace with the leg development of a man who walks 20 miles a day regularly, because in the first place systematic exercise is carried on under the eye of a qualified instructor. It is not carried too far for the subject undertaking the exercise. It is carried on scientifically, and secondly, after all is over, there is the cold bath. Yet after the first man's five minutes he is refreshed, and after the second man's five hours walking he is fatigued and unable to take the bath. But surely you would not deprecate all forms of sport and enjoyment. Far from it. But what I do urge is the necessity for preparing the body for them and allowing no form of exercise to be abused. Let all remember that fencing will produce spinal curvature if the individual is either weak or careless of how he goes about the exercise, that professional cycling is apt to cause round shoulders, small chest, and large lower limbs. What you deprecate in the world of sport is the gradual abandonment of it to the few. Yes, remember, this is the tendency of the whole sport. While it is the great outdoor means of expending the exuberant strength and energy, Systematic exercise is a scientific means of building up and perfecting that strength in one's own private room. Before I left, Mr. Hodgson, in answer to another inquiry, said he considered Mr. Sandow's and Professor Dow's systems as the most beneficial, while he obligingly put me through several of the numerous movements to which he submits his pupils, and lifted various heavy weights. This done, I bid him good morning, and went on another mission. I might mention that the system of physical culture practiced by Mr. Hodgson is essentially scientific, the pupil being treated upon lines determined in accordance with the facts of physiology. Ariel. Hodgson's school of physical culture failed to turn a profit, and after a couple of years he turned to writing. His stories drew heavily from his seafaring experiences. The following article is from the New York Daily Tribune of November 17th, 1907, but it was also printed in Greencastle, Indiana, Chautauqua, New York, Fort Collins, Colorado, Pierre, South Dakota, and lots of others. Judging from what I've been able to find, this may be his most widely printed article. New York Daily Tribune, Sunday, November 17, 1907. Through the Vortex of a Cyclone The wind had dropped entirely and with the dropping of the wind a thousand different sounds broke harshly upon the ear, sounding almost unnatural in their distinctness, and impressing the ear with a sense of discomfort. With each roll of the ship there came a chorus of creaks and groans from the swaying masts and gear, and the sails slatted with a damp, disagreeable sound. Beyond the ship, there was the constant harsh murmur of the sea, occasionally changing to a low roar as one broke near us. One other sound there was that punctuated all these, and that was the loud, slapping blows of the seas as they hove themselves clumsily against the ship. And, for the rest, there was a strange sense of silence. Then, as sudden as the report of a heavy gun, a great bellowing came out of the north and east and died away into a series of muttered growls. It was not thunder. It was the voice of the approaching cyclone. In the same instant the mate nudged my shoulder and pointed, and I saw, with a great feeling of surprise, that a large waterspout had formed about two hundred yards astern and was coming toward us. All about the base of it the sea was foaming in a strange manner, and the whole thing seemed to have a curious luminous quality. It's coming! 
Look out, everybody! Hold on for your lives! Directly afterward, a shrill yelling noise seemed to fill the whole sky with a deafening, piercing sound. I glanced hastily over the port quarter. In that direction, the whole surface of the ocean seemed to be torn up into the air in monstrous clouds of spray. The yelling sound passed into a vast scream, and the next instant, the cyclone was upon us. Immediately, the air was so full of flying spray that I could not see a yard before me, and the wind slapped me back against the teak companion, pinning me there for a few moments helpless. The ship heeled over to a terrible angle, so that for some seconds I thought we were going to capsize. Then, with a sudden lurch, she hove herself upright, and I became able to see about me a little by switching the water from my face and shielding my eyes. Near to me, the helmsman, a little dago, was clinging to the wheel, looking like nothing so much as a drowned monkey, and palpably frightened to such an extent that he could hardly stand upright. Some time later, there sounded an intense roar in the air above the ship, and then came a far-off shrieking that grew rapidly into a mighty, whistling scream, and a minute afterward a most tremendous gust of wind struck the ship on her port side, hurling her over onto her starboard broadside. For many minutes she lay there, her decks underwater almost up to the hatches. Then she righted, sullenly and slowly, freeing herself from, maybe, half a thousand tons of water. Again, there came a short period of windlessness, and then once more the yelling of an approaching gust. It struck us, but now the vessel had paid off before the wind, and she was not again forced over onto her side. From now onward we drove forward over vast seas, with the cyclone bellowing and wailing over us in one unbroken roar. The vortex had passed, and... Could we but last out a few more hours, then might we hope to win through. William Hope Hodgson in Cornhill Here's an article from 1908 about another seafaring story. The Times-Dispatch, Richmond, Virginia, Sunday, March 29, 1908 Putnam's and the Reader for April will have as its frontispiece a drawing by Percy Cohen, illustrating... The Shamrockin' Homeward Bounder by William Hope Hodgson. Among the writers of interest are noted Arthur C. Benson, Clara Morris, Henry Holt, Lil Hamilton French, H. Perry Robinson, Cornelia A. Pratt, Paul Hellu, and Herbert Quick. Here's another article from 1908 that conveys Hodgson's unusual combination of traits. Even now, years after his school of physical culture has failed, He's still known for his physical strength. The Queenslander, for September 12, 1908. William Hope Hodgson, whose two books, The Boats of the Glen Carrig and The House on the Borderland, proved noteworthy on account of their strength and original imaginings, is not insensible, says the literary world, to the spiritual side of things, as is clearly indicated by his poem, Shoon of the Dead, which follows the dedication of his second book. Mr. Hodgson, though what he would describe as a writin' chap, is famous in the North for his physical strength, being able to lift a full-grown man over his head with one hand. He has, however, forsaken the North, and gone to the beautiful shore of the great Cardigan Bay, where lived Alan Rain. But except for the accident of place, the two writers are poles asunder in style and subject, Mr. Hodgson being as forceful as Alan Rain was sentimental. Speaking of physical strength, here's an ad from 1911 about a Hodgson collection with the word strong in the title. The Australasian, Melbourne, Saturday, November 11th, 1916. In The Luck of the Strong, London, Nash, Mr. William Hope Hodgson gives us a collection of short stories, most of which are exciting tales of sea adventure. There is, however, one good land story. It is no less stirring than the sea stories and is concerned with a bold and ingenious burglary. Two of the pieces have to do with strange events on distant treasure islands, while in another, 
We Too and Bully Duncan, there is some particularly strenuous scrapping of the fiercest kind in which the principal hero displays wonderful prowess and astuteness. Most of Mr. Hodgson's characters are of a virile type. It is in the weird and terrible that this author is at his best, and an excellent example is to be found in the last story of all, The Stone Ship, which tells of the sudden resurrection in tropic seas of a ship long since lost, and of extraordinary experiences undergone by the crew of the vessel that discovered it. Historic headlines will return after this message. An old nurse for children. Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup for children teething should always be used for children while teething. It soothes the child, softens the gums, allays all pain, cures wind, colic, and is the best remedy for diarrhea. Directions for using Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. For a child under one month old, six to ten drops. Three months old, half a teaspoonful. Six months old and upwards, a teaspoonful three or four times a day. For diarrhea, repeat the above dose every two hours until the character of the discharge is changed for the better. Sold everywhere. And we're back! So if you've been listening to this podcast, you found that ad familiar. In episode 12, I read advertisements for Mother Bailey's Quieting Syrup. Advertisements from 1868? 50 years prior to this one? Yep, 50 years later, people were still giving morphine to their babies. Jumping forward to 1917, we find another exciting seafaring story. The Queenslander, for April 14, 1917. The Real Thing, S.O.S. William Hope Hodgson in the Cornhill Magazine. The great vessel swings round against the night with enormous sends, smiting the faces of the great seas with her seventy-feet-high bows. Crash! A roar of water aboard as a hundred phosphorescent tons of seawater hurls inboard out of the darkness and rushes aft along the lower decks, boiling and surging over the hatchways, capstans, neck fittings, and round the corners of the deckhouses. The ship has hit the fifty-mile-an-hour gale full in the face, and the engine telegraph stands at full speed. The master has word with that king of the underworld, the chief engineer and the chief goes below himself to take charge, just as the master has taken charge of the deck. There is fresh news from the operator's room. The vessel somewhere out in the night and the grim storm is the SS Vanderfield, with sixty first-class passengers and seven hundred steerage, and she is slight forward. The fire has got a strong hold, and they have already lost three boats, smashed to pieces as they tried to launch them and every man, woman, and child in the boats crushed to death or drowned. Damn these old-fashioned davits, says the master as he reads the wireless operator's notes. They won't lift a boat out clear of the ship's side if she's rolling a bit. The boats in a ship are just ornaments if you've not got proper machinery for launching them. We've got the new derricks, and we can lower a boat so she strikes the water forty feet clear of the side, instead of bashing to pieces like a sixty-foot pendulum against our side. He shouts a question over his shoulder, standing there by the binnacle. What's she doing, Mr. Andrews? Twenty-three and three-quarters knots, sir, says the second officer, who has been in charge. But the chief's raising her revolutions every minute. She's nearly on to the twenty-one now. And even if we lick that, we'll be over five hours reaching her, mutters the master to himself. Meanwhile, the wireless is beating a message of hope across a hundred miles of night and storm and wild waters. Coming! The RMS Cornucopia is proceeding at full speed in your direction. Keep us informed how you are. Then follows a brief unofficial statement a heart-to-heart -heart word between the young men operators of the two ships across the hundred-mile gulf of Black Seas. Buck up, old man. We'll do it yet. We're simply piling into the storm like a giddy cliff. She's doing close on twenty-one, they've just told me, against the breeze, and the chief's down in the stokeholds himself with a fourteen-inch spanner and a double watch of stokers, 
Keep all your peckers up. I'll let you know if we are speeding up any more. The operator had been brief and literal, and has rather understated the facts. The Leviathan is now hurling all her 50,000-ton length through the great seas at something approaching a 22-knot stride, and the speed is rising. Down in the engine room and stokeholds, the chief, minus his overalls, is a coatless demigod with life in one hand and a 14-inch wrench in the other. Not that this wrench is in any way necessary, for the half-naked men stream willing sweat in a silence broken only by the rasp of the big shovels and the clang of the furnace doors and the chief's voice. The chief is young again and a king tonight and the rough days of his youth have surged back over him. He has picked up the wrench unconsciously, and he walks about, twirling it in his fist. And the stokers work the better for the comely might of it, and the sharp twang of his words that miss no man of them all. And the great ship feels the effect. Her great tread has broken into an everlasting thunder as her shoulders hurl the seas to port and starboard in shattered hills of water that surge to right and left in half-mile drifts of phosphorescent foam under the roll of her gargantuan flanks. The first hour has passed, and there have been two fresh messages from that vessel, flaming far off, lost and alone, out in the wild roar of the waters. There has been an explosion forward in the burning ship, and the fire has come aft as far as the main bunkers, there has been a panic attempt to lower two more of the boats, and each has been smashed to flinders of wood against the side of the burning ship as she rolled. Every soul in them has been killed or drowned, and the operator in the burning ship asks a personal question that has the first touch of real despair in it, and there ensues another little heart-to-heart -heart talk between the two young men. Honest, now, do you think you can do it? Sure said the operator in the cornucopia. We're doing what we've never done at sea before in heavy weather. We're touching within a knot of our trials speed. We're doing twenty-four and a half knots, and we're doing it against this. Honor bright, old man. I'll not deceive you at a time like this. I never saw anything like what we're doing. All the engineers are in the engine room, and all the officers are on the boat deck, overhauling the boats and gear. We've got those new 40-foot boat derricks, and we can shove a boat into the water with them, with the ship rolling half under. The old man's on the bridge, and I guess you're just going to be saved, all right. You ought to hear us. I tell you, man, she's just welting the seas to a pulp and skating along to you on the top of them. The operator is right. The great ship seems alive tonight, along all her shapely 800 feet of marvelous, honest, beautiful steel. Her enormous bows take the seas as on a horn, and hurl them roaring into screaming drifts of foam. She is singing a song, fore and aft, and the thunder of her gray steel flanks is stupendous as she spurns the mutilated seas and the gale and the bleak intolerable miles into her wake. The second and third hours pass, and part of the fourth, in an intermittent thunder of speed, and the speed has been further increased, for now the Leviathan is laying the miles astern, twenty-nine in each hour, her sides drunken with black water and spume, a dripping, league-conquering, fifty-thousand-ton shape of steel and steam and brains, going like some stupendous angel of help across the black desolation of the night. Incredibly far away, down on the black horizons of the night, there shows a faint red glow. There is shouting along the bridge. There she is! Goes the word fore and aft. There she is! Meanwhile, the wireless messages pulse across the darkness. The fire is burning with terrible fury. The forepart of the Vanderfield's iron skin is actually glowing red-hot in places. Despair is seizing everyone. Will the coming cornucopia never, never come? The young operators talk, using informal words. Look out to the south of you for our searchlight, replies the man in the wireless room of the cornucopia. The old man's going to play it against the clouds to let you see we're coming. Tell them all to look out for it. It'll cheer them up. 
We're walking along through the smother like an express. Man, man, we're doing our trials speed. Twenty-five and a half knots against this. Do you realize it? Against this. Look along to the south. Now. There is a hissing on the forebridge, quite unheard in the roar of the storm. And then there shoots out across the miles of night and broken seas the white fan blaze of the searchlight. It beats like an enormous baton against the black canopy of the monstrous storm clouds, beating to the huge, thundering melody of the roar and onward hurl of the 50,000-ton rescuer, tossing the billows to right and left as she strides through the miles. And what a sight it is in the glare of the great light as it descends and shows the huge seas, a great cliff of black water rears up and leaps forward at the ship's bows. There is a thunderous impact, and the ship has smitten the great sea in twain and tossed it boiling and roaring on to her iron flanks, and is treading it into the welter of foam that surrounds her on every side, a raging testimony of foam and shattered seas to the might of her mile-devouring stride. Another and another and another black, moving cliff rises up out of the water valleys which she strides across, and each is broken and tossed, mutilated from her shapely, mighty, unafraid shoulders. A message is coming very weak and faint through the receiver. We've picked up your searchlight, old man. It's comforted us mightily, but we can't last much longer. The dynamo's stopped. I'm running on my batteries. It dwindles off into silence, broken by fragments of a message too weakly projected to be decipherable. Look at her! The officers shout to one another on the bridge, for the yell of the wind and the ship thunder is too great for ordinary speech to be heard. They are staring through their glasses, under a black canopy of bellied storm clouds, shot with a dull red glowing, there is tossed up on the backs of faraway seas a far-off ship, seeming incredibly minute because of the distance, and from her forepart sprouts a swaying tower of flame. We'll never do it in time, says the young sixth officer into the ear of the fifth. The burning ship is now less than three miles away, and the black backs of the great seas are splashed with huge, ever-shifting reflections. Through the glasses, it is possible now to see the details of the tremendous hold the fire has got on the ship, and away aft, the huddled masses of the 600-odd remaining passengers. As they watch, one of the funnels disappears with an unheard crash, and a great spout of flame and sparks shoot up. It'll go through her bottom, shouts the second officer, but they know this does not happen, for she still floats. Suddenly comes the thrilling cry of, Our derricks! And there is a racing of feet and shouted orders. Then the great derricks swing out from the ship's side, a boat's length above the boat deck. They are hinged and supported almost to the draft line of the ship. They reach out forty feet clear of the ship's side. The Leviathan is bursting through the final miles of wild seas. And then the telegraph bell rings, and she slows down, not more than ten or twelve hundred yards to windward of the burning hull, which rises and falls, a stupendous spectacle on the waste of black seas. The fifty-thousand-ton racer has performed her noble work, and now the work lies with the boats and the men. The searchlight flashes down onto the near water and the boats shoot out in the travelers, then are dropped clear of the mighty flanks of the mother ship. The Leviathan lies to windward of them, to break the force of the seas, and oil bags are put out. The people in the burning ship greet the ship with mad cheers. The women are hove bodily into the seas, on the ends of lines. They float in their cork jackets. Men take children in their arms, and jump, similarly equipped and all are easily picked up by the boats in the blaze of the rescuers' searchlights that brood on leagues of ocean, strangely subdued by the floods of oil which the big ship is pumping onto the seas. Everywhere lies the strange sheen of oil, here in a sudden valley of brine, unseen, or there on the shoulder of some monstrous wave, suddenly eased of its deadliness. 
Or again, the same fluorescence swirls over some half-league of eddy-flattened ocean, resting between efforts, tossing minor oil-smoothed ridges into the tremendous lights. Then the leviathan steams to leeward of the burning ship and picks up her boats. She takes the rescued passengers aboard and returns to windward, then drops the boats again and repeats the previous operations until every man, woman, and child is saved. As the last boat swings up at the end of the great derricks aboard the cornucopia, there is a final volcano of flame from the burning ship, lighting up the black belly of the sky into billowing clouds of redness. There falls the eternal blackness of the night. The Vanderfield has gone. The Leviathan swings round through the night, with her six hundred saved, and begins to sing again in her deep heart, laying the miles and the storm astern once more in a deep, low thunder. Now, moving forward to 1918, just a week or two before Hodgson's death, we find a flurry of advertisements for a new book. If the number of advertisements I've found means anything, this was the most popular of his seafaring works. The Sun, New York, Saturday, April 7, 1918. Captain Galt by William Hope Hodgson. Captain Galt isn't a villain, but a cargo of contraband never freights his conscience below the plimsoll mark. He has adventures with customs officers, with a mummy case, and other persons and things. New York, Robert M. McBride and Company. $1.35. The Indianapolis News. Monday evening, April 8, 1918. Captain Galt by William Hope Hodgson, New York. Robert M. McBride and Company. $1.35. About the adventures of a mariner of easy conscience in Contra and running. The New York Tribune, Saturday, April 13, 1918. Captain Galt by William Hope Hodgson. The Merry and Mysterious Adventures in Deception of Captain Galt, Merchant Seaman and Prince of Smugglers. $1.35 net. Captain Galt by William Hope Hodgson purports to be the exceedingly confidential log of one of the most engaging captains that ever sailed the seas. It is concerned with smuggling, war plots, and innumerable adventures, humorous, daring, romantic, all told in entertaining fashion and brimful of human nature. The New York Times, Saturday, April 13, 1918. Captain Galt Captain Galt by William Hope Hodgson Robert M. McBride and Company, $1.35 net. The very unheroic hero of this new book is the captain of an ocean steamer, or, rather, of several ocean steamers, for he is transferred from passenger to freight steamers and back again in the course of the volume. He himself is the narrator, telling his adventures as a smuggler in a series of short stories, for though ostensibly a merchant captain, his real business is what the author apparently regards as the entirely excusable, if not exactly laudable one, of defrauding the English and United States governments. However, Captain Galt is not altogether devoid of a sense of decency, as he proves in the affair of the German spy. He is a decidedly ingenious person, and the methods he uses to cheat the customs officers are usually clever and frequently entertaining. The stories are fairly amusing and succeed in holding the reader's attention. Most of them have to do with the smuggling of jewels into the United States, but one tells how a wonderful carving in which a certain Chinese secret society was greatly interested was, to put it mildly, taken possession of by Captain Galt while another describes how he contrived to land something like 2,000 pounds worth of rifles on the English coast, under the very noses of the port officer and his men. Such persons, it may be added, never failed to walk into any trap which the worthy captain set for them. The stories are rather neatly constructed, but the author's style is amateurish, while the dialogue, and especially that part of it put into the mouth of Mrs. Ernley of the opening story, is particularly poor. 
This next one was printed about three weeks after Hodgson's death, but it's likely no one involved in the newspaper knew about that yet. Richmond Times-Dispatch, Richmond, Virginia, Thursday, May 9th, 1918. Books and Authors What is described as a feast of entertainment from caviar to coffee has just been published by Robert M. McBride and Company under the title of Captain Galt. The book is by William Hope Hodgson and is an account of the adventures in deception of one G. Galt, master mariner and smuggler at large. The volume is said to be filled with action, and it has nothing to do with the war. Two months later, we find another ad in the New York Herald. As you'll find from the final sentence, which hits like a bucket of cold water, Hodgson's death was well known by this time. The New York Herald, New York, Sunday, July 7, 1918. Captain Galt by William Hope Hodgson, McBride consists of selections from the diary of as engaging a rascal as ever sailed the seas. He is sometimes in command of a liner, sometimes of a tramp steamer, but wherever he is, he is on the make, and his principal source of revenue is smuggling. Very clever is Captain Galt, and although the Custom House officials on both sides of the Atlantic are after him, he is too much for them. On one occasion, he finds himself approaching Liverpool with 300,000 Havana cigars on board, which he expects to deliver, free of duty, to an English firm. On his arrival in port, his ship is boarded by the customs men, who have had information as to the captain's private cargo, but the strictest search only reveals the 1,200 that he declares, and he gets a clean sheet, after which he invites the head officer to dinner on shore and tells him how he brought in the rest of his valuable importation. Contraband of War describes the ingenious way in which four cases of rifles were landed somewhere, presumably in Ireland, where they were contraband. The Drum of Saccharin recounts the manner in which a hundred pounds of saccharin were brought into England without paying a penny of duty, while in The Curio Dealer, the scene is shifted to Chinatown in San Francisco and sounds a more tragic note. The stories are very good reading, and a further interest is attached to them by the fact that there will be no more of them, the writer having been recently killed in action. That's it for the Captain Galt ads. Jumping forward two years, we find a reference to another seafaring story included in an advertisement for a Missouri paper. I don't know whether anyone realized the author was dead. The Farmington Times, Farmington, St. Francis County, Missouri, Friday, October 29, 1920. Here is part of the Feast of Features in next Sunday's Globe Democrat. An Adventure of the Deep Waters, a thrilling short story by William Hope Hodgson. I'm going to close with another of Hodgson's stories about his time with French soldiers. It was published one month after that How the French Fight article, three years and a few months before Hodgson's death. I'm using that pair of articles as episode bookends not only because they give such a vivid sense of the action in World War I, but because they speak to me most clearly of Hodgson's personality. The Brisbane Courier, Monday, January 18, 1915. On the Hillside. How the French Soldier Deals with Spies, by William Hope Hodgson in the Westminster Gazette. A soldier comes out from behind a pine tree with rifle and fixed bayonet. Où allez-vous, he says, stepping before me and dropping his bayonet point a little towards me. Je vais me promener, I reply, smiling, and anticipate his next demand by pulling out my case and displaying my special permit. Also, various other papers and an officially stamped photograph, which proves my identification with the name upon the special permit. Monsieur, permit me, says the soldier suddenly, in very fair English. Monsieur is English? I shake you by the hand with very great pleasure. We shake with enormous impressment, and I compliment him upon his English. He smiles, gratified, and disclaims with great modesty. He beckons me back among the trees. One comes, he says. Shh, the woods here have been many times set in flames. 
we have suspect these be done with intention. How? Why? I ask, whispering to his whisper. The forts, he says softly, staring keenly down the narrow path among the trees. The trees have act as a mask. We have suspect that spies have set the lights. We watch, much. One comes very near. Hark him, you stay here when I go challenge. Right, I whisper. You see him? He asks a moment later. There by the culvert. Sst! He ceased his whisper abruptly, and we both bent forward together. A hundred yards down the narrow path, among the pines, a man in a workman's blue blouse is standing, looking quietly in every direction. Suddenly he takes a couple of steps in among the trees, and for a few moments I cannot see him, but the soldier turns to me and signs for absolute silence, laying his forefinger on his lips, his eyes shining. He begins to tiptoe down among the trees, keeping a few paces away from the path. I am following. As we go down, a step at a time, noiselessly on the pine needles, there sounds a very soft whistle below, which is answered immediately from somewhere to the left, and further down the slope of the pine-covered hill. We take a few more steps in utter silence, then pause and listen. The soldier makes a queer, excited gesture, throwing up his left hand to make sure that I do not move. I hear the sound now, a soft and cautious scraping of earth. The sentry begins to go forward again, and suddenly we open out a vista, long and narrow, among the trees. Seeming far away, perhaps two hundred, perhaps two hundred and fifty yards downhill, a figure is lying on its stomach, its face close to the earth. Near to the head there is what appears, at the distance, to be a small box. Arre, mutters the soldier, under his breath, and slips down onto his face, behind a big pine, waving frantically with one hand to his rear for me to do likewise. The sound of something scraping softly at the earth continues. It is now on our right front, and, suddenly, I see the man we have already seen. He is about forty yards away, kneeling down. He is lifting something which looks like a narrow slab of stone. He is stooping now into some cavity which he has just laid open. He takes a pair of wire cutters from his pocket, and I hear the snick, distinctly, as he cuts through something in the cavity. The sound catches the hearing of the soldier, and he glances to his right swiftly. I hear the half-hissed, Arre! again, as he sees the second man. Then, suddenly, he pushes his rifle forward, and there comes a slight snicking sound. Far down the hillside, at the end of the narrow vista among the trees, the second man has knelt up suddenly. So utter is the silence that I can hear him plainly as he coughs. He begins to haul on something, and I realize suddenly the meaning of the whole incident that I am watching. The two men have located the underground private telephone wire, going up to the, and Hodgson omits the name, fort. They have been tapping it for any news they might pick up, and now they are removing a couple of hundred meters of wire bodily, after which, no doubt, they will replace the slabs which roof in the underground channel and smooth back the earth and pine needles over the two disturbed places. The soldier is methodical. He takes the distant man first. Kneeling there behind him, I watch, with a growing thrill and tension of tragedy and sickness, his sunburnt cheek cuddle against the stock of his rifle. Then, very slowly, it seems to me, in that quite dreadful moment, his stubby, cigarette-stained forefinger crooks back gently on the trigger. It is horrible to kneel there behind him and realize that the slowly crooking of that cigarette-stained finger is literally the finger of death to the man down the long vista of trees. Crack! comes the sharp, snapping bang of the weapon, and the man down the vista of trees gives a queer little jump and then turns right round, quickly, and looks behind him. And, thus looking, and seeming unaware that he is the person who has been shot, his heart stops, and he rolls over quite easily and gently on his side, a merciful enough death as these violent deaths go. And then, as I stare, the rifle goes crack again, and I jump, for I am still looking at the silent figure down the vista of trees. 
But the soldier has been attending to his business and has snapped off a second shot, less well aimed than the first because of the sudden need for haste, at the nearer man for the man had started to bolt. And because the shot was hastily aimed, the second death is as unmerciful as the first was merciful. An examination of both bodies shows that the men are German spies in possession of ciphered information that would, no doubt, prove very helpful to our enemies. They are also armed, each with Mauser automatic pistols. So now you know William Hope Hodgson, a manly man, a man obsessed with strength of will and of body, a restless adventurer so wildly fearless that even Daredevil would do a double take and go, damn, dude. Next time, I'm going to introduce you to the other William Hope Hodgson, the William Hope Hodgson who seems to have originated the concept of the paranormal investigator, the William Hope Hodgson whom H.P. Lovecraft credited as a primary influence, which means massive swaths of literature from the 20th century and beyond bear his creative stamp. The William Hope Hodgson who wrote The Nightland, a novel so unprecedented and singular that it was like a tectonic event in weird Warning. fiction. Warning. What? Warning. Hey. False dichotomy uh. alert. False dichotomy alert. False dichotomy alert. Podcaster is exaggerating mutual exclusivity for dramatic purposes. Narrative is unsound. Proceed with oh, caution. Where is that switch? Warning. Ah, there it Warning. is. Warning. Warning. Okay, okay, they get it. Jeez, allow me a little narrative license here. <sighs> All right, next time I'll talk about aspects of William Hope Hodgson that most of his contemporaries probably didn't know or care about. Better? Anyway, thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stole away.